fear, as, as you know, is um, comes out as anger, right? Yeah. So out of that fear, all people want to do is go hire the toughest lawyer in town and seek and destroy the other side. What can I do to devastate? Is it financial? Is it take the kids away? Help me come up with the best plan to make this as difficult as possible for the other person. Right. That vulnerable state is what causes them to go there. Okay, hi folks, and welcome to the Undo Anxiety Podcast. Um, I appreciate you protecting some time for myself and my guests. Uh, quick note on why we call this thing the Undo Anxiety Podcast as opposed to something else. Uh, we are looking to kind of tell stories um, and eliminate taboos and undo some of the undue anxiety that we all suffer in one way or another. Um, today, I have kind of a most exciting, interesting, um, unusual guest for this podcast, um, Beth McCormack. Welcome to the Undue Anxiety Podcast. Thank you, John. <laughs> okay. Beth, uh, you, you are uh, one of the top 50 women attorneys in Illinois, one of the top attorneys, regardless of gender, apparently, in Illinois as well. That's right. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Um, and, you know, I, I have friends who are lawyers. Um, I, my, my brother's a lawyer. Um, most of them do corporate law. You do something different. You do something w that I would consider harder. Do you mind describing like what it is that you do and h how you decided to do it? Yeah, so I'm a family law attorney. Um, what that means is I represent people in divorce or anything related to families, but it's more typically divorce. Paternity actions are when two people have a child together but don't marry. Right. So I do that. I also represent kiddos, so um, it's called a child's representative. Yeah. Some people know a guardian ad litem. Right. I serve that role as well. And then um, as a niche practice underneath being a family law attorney, I am what's called a collaborative law fellow, meaning I work with people to pull them out of court, commit to a process where they can resolve their differences in an amicable way. Mm -hmm. They sign a contract saying they will stay out of court. If they are not able to reach an agreement, they then have to go to different attorneys. So everyone has skin in the game to sit at the table and figure it out rather than have a judge decide the outcome. And and uh, just, just a note on that, the couple signs a contract? You, you, get, you can get a couple to sign, a, a divorcing couple to sign a contract saying, okay, we will, we will collaborate, we'll work together? You do, and um, if you think it through, you can uh, realize that why they would want to do that. So you explain to them that they get to keep control out of, over their outcome right? rather than having a person in a black robe who sits above you telling you where your kiddos are going to sleep at night, how much you're going to get in and out of your bank account, that sort of thing. That usually appeals to people. I think it's human nature to want control. I think it is too. Um, I'll just, and, and we'll, we'll kind of play with this a little bit. In my experience with divorcing couples, there's usually kind of this, um, at the, in the early stages, this drive and this wish for collaboration and for working together. And then either animosity or um, attorneys for one side or the other. Somebody gets involved or something happens. Or the Greek chorus, as we call it. Their family, their friends. Yes. People get them all worked up. Yep. And, and so what looks like it's going to be this amiable, you know, almost like elegant process turns out to be a three-year-long mess. You teed up the, uh, the rest of the process that <laughs> very, very well for me, John. So... 
In addition to having two lawyers, you have a coach, a mental health professional, or sometimes two coaches mm -hmm. to deal with all the emotion involved in a divorce. Right. Divorce is very, very little legal, arguably, right? Right. You, it's really all about the money and the emotion. And guess what? Money triggers emotion and fear, undue anxiety, so to speak. <laughs> right, exactly. So I, uh, I will not do a collaborative matter without a coach, a mental health professional, reminding people constantly this is not a therapist. They are trained as mental health professionals. In this process, they pull back from that role. They are not doing any therapizing. We have our people in therapy as right. well. Okay. The coach is only looking forward, forward momentum. Why, are you, why do you want this? What are your goals? What are your concerns? The other member of the team is called a financial neutral. That person's helping them deal with the finances in a neutral way. What makes sense for you today, tomorrow, six years, 25 years away? Helping people look down. We're constantly, a coach friend taught me, doing what we call periscope thinking for you. Looking around the corner and down the line to see what's going what's to happen later. You are also, there, there's so many pieces there. But you are also an advocate for kids, right? You say like, like that this is, uh, are there always kids involved? I mean, is, is it easier or harder when kids are involved? Well, it depends on the family. So, um, of course, there are couples who divorce without children involved or whose children are adults. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, just because they're adults, as we all know, that doesn't make it necessarily easier. Right. Um, but if children are involved, of course, there's a ton more emotion. Um, inevitably, in every case, there's one party who is more prepared for a divorce, another party who's not quite as ready. So again, I as a lawyer, if it's not a collaborative matter, or coaches are trying to help those people try to modulate that a little bit so they're both closer to being on the same page. If not, the litigation, which I also oversee, is really, really tough because emotionally one person's ready to fight. They, they fight or flight, right? They right. want to just do what they have to do to survive. So I, as a practitioner, I'm trying to regulate that to minimize the fighting because that the children are the collateral damage if they're fighting. Of course, right. And and feelings are such a profound part of that whole divorce process, right? Because you're 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 so right. Almost always, one person has that foot out the door, and the other kind of wants to hold tight. Um, and so, to find that collaborative center has got to be. Uh, a a tightrope walk, a little bit. And as you point out, John, the other attorney, I'm, my first question to uh, people is, do you know who your spouse is going to hire? Because so much of what I do depends on who I'm working against mm. or with. Yeah. In a collaborative process, I'm working with a lawyer to help people get across the finish line. In litigation, I'm working against them. I have no interest in what their goals are. I just want to destroy them. That's counterintuitive to who I am as a person, but that is my job and I feel like I, I've done that well. Uh -huh. Evolving into a collaborative process made sense to me because that's more true to who I am. Yeah. Having said that, I tell people often my litigation brain hasn't died. Do I still have the ability to go in and look and destroy? Absolutely. But is it what I want to do day in and day out? No. How did you How'd you pick this? Like, so, so you go to law school and, you know, you have these options, right? This seems so messy and complicated to me, you know, like um, I, I, even as a therapist, I, you know, there are some therapy, therapists who, who spec specifically work in this field 
And I do a little bit of work in this field because it's exhausting. And there's, you know, there's so many little elements to it that you have to tease out. How did you, how did you end up here? So I went to law school to help people. So there are obviously lots of areas in the law where you help people. Um, You learn in law school what kind of law you want to do by what's called clerking. So when you're clerking in law firms, you're looking at how they practice and what they do. And I eliminated certain careers that way because I wasn't able to touch the people quite as intimately. Needless to say, family law is a very intimate business. Mm -hmm. I get to know my clients very, very well. And um, sometimes vice versa. I share some of my own personal anecdotes to inspire or help regulate them and let them know that their problems are not unique to divorcing families, that we all have a lot of anxiety in everyday life and try to help them feel a little better. Um, So my desire to help people, I would say, is what inspired me. Um, Domestic violence is always a cause that's been near and dear to my heart. I feel like I've always wanted to help survivors. So my first several jobs out of law school were helping domestic violence survivors why is that a passion of yours? Not, not that it shouldn't no, be, of course. No, it's like it it's, seems critically important. It's but. a very often asked question about me. I um, do a lot of fundraising and um, advising of domestic violence agencies. Um, and so in that process, people are always saying, why? Why domestic violence? Yeah. Um, was it in your life? You know, I, Right, um, sure. So I thankfully, not at all. Um, I can't say that. Not at all in my family life. My parents... Um, have an awesome, um, perfectly imperfect marriage, and uh, <laughs> I likewise do. Um, what, where it stemmed from, it took me years to remember um, why. But um, as a teenager, I had a girlfriend who was a victim of domestic violence, but I didn't know that at the time, right? So yeah. when you're a 14 to 17-year-old girl, you just know that that relationship felt a little weird, mm-hmm. and I knew I wanted to help her, but I didn't know how and when and what. Um, in retrospect, I understand, and as an adult, she's still my best friend. Um, I understand now what she was going through, and it's choices that people make. So part of the reason I support Between Friends, the domestic violence agency, is they do uh, youth education in the schools on what domestic violence is to help kiddos have a better shot at healthy relationships and break the cycle of violence. It, it's such a uh, an important thing to teach and to teach young, right? I mean, um, I, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a girl, Samantha, um, who talked about how, she, she's only 18, maybe 19 years old, and she talked about how when she was a freshman and sophomore in high school, she was in an abusive, kind of violent relationship and wholly unaware of it until mm-hmm. recently, you know, really like kind of, and, and when she describes, you know, the nature of it and how this boy treated her, you know, only in retrospect did she really gain, you know, the perspective that mm, that was abusive, that was mm. awful, you know. And so um, I think that a lot, a lot of kids are unaware of it. Uh, and sometimes I think what we miss is that we have to talk to boys about it too, you know. Like sometimes I think we're, you know, too often we're like, you know, let's teach girls the signs of an abusive young man at, at, instead of teaching boys also how not to be abusive young men. Absolutely. So I'm constantly in my career now reminding people you're not modeling good behavior for your children. They're watching every move you make, as you well know. So I'm constantly reminding them that an unhealthy marriage is somehow not better for a child Mm -hmm. than just divorcing and helping them cope. 
Yeah. Um, but I'm with you, John, on the importance of teaching both uh, young men and women what domestic violence is and what a healthy relationship really looks like. Right, right. Because they really only know what they know from home. They're only, I think, and then uh, in the schools, we're trying to teach them what to try to undo some of what they've learned. Maybe. Right, right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, I so honor that that remains something that you're passionate about. That's a no small yeah, thing. I can't do the boots on the ground anymore. You know, representing those survivors in court, I will not lie, was very, very daunting and exhausting and um, deflating. Mm -hmm. So now I've shifted my um, fight in the fundraising for these agencies and strategizing how to help these women and children that we serve that's not to say there aren't male victims of domestic violence. We always have to say that. Of course. But we also want to talk about the percentages of, of the people we serve. Right, right. Um, when, you, when you say it was daunting, I know you did that for a while. Um, what, was, what was the toughest part? Like it, it, in, in my projective mind, it's that people fall back into patterns. You know, like because um, I've worked with some people who have been victims or perpetrators of domestic violence. And what was upsetting and frustrating more often than not was oh you're you're going back you know like it to the same situation we're, we're going to expect something to be different all of a sudden because right. he or she promises okay it won't happen again i promise you you know well you're teeing me up for a chance at educating someone so <laughs> there's uh, uh the domestic violence cycle that i i did not make this up this is something that's been around for many many years to help um, those of us who serve the um those who have been abused and for the survivors themselves. So the cycle of violence talks about the explosion, so to speak, and then the honeymoon phase, mm -hmm. and then the tension building, and then back to the explosion, honeymoon, tension building. I help people see that that cycle can sometimes be an hour. It can be five days. It can be a day. It can be six months. None of us know when that cycle is going to take its course. Talk about but daunting. that cycle is real mm -hmm. and helping those survivors at least see when the tension building is happening what's coming and try to avoid that and come up with a safety plan yeah so again for the practitioners it's important to remind themselves and their uh, clients the importance of knowing that cycle because it's very real we got it yep um, and and what what a what a good point I never really thought about the nature of the cycle and that it can be so tight and so stretched out as well, you right. know, right? So we, we uh, there, there's nothing linear about this, right? Not we can't compare one case to another because they're so different, right? Right. Yeah. And you and I had spoken briefly earlier about the old Greek chorus. So so often as humans, we, we, we look to our people, our village, right? Is it my mom? Is it my cousin? Is it my best friend? Everybody's got giving them advice. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult as a lawyer to kind of rein that in and say, please listen to me because I know you and your facts. Right. It doesn't matter to me what your cousin got as financially or as far as parenting time or whatever. It's very important for people to realize that that Greek chorus has a real effect on how this couple gets through the process. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, kind of like dovetailing toward your work now, I, I picture that, you know, in the midst of divorce, you've got people at their, um, maybe their most heightened emotional time in their lives, and maybe their most unreasonable, right? Even if you get perfectly reasonable people, they might be unreasonable and very highly emotional at this time. How do you, how do you navigate that when you have this kind of 
process you have to get them through. So I don't know that I have any divorce matters that I work on without a mental health professional. Mm. I have to partner with them, right? So whether it's in the role as a therapist or as a coach, I'm humble enough to know what I don't know. And there are certain um, emotional triggers, et cetera, right. that I can't possibly understand. That's not my background. Do I feel like I have a pretty good sense after practicing law for 25 years in this area? I Yes, but I am not a clinician. Right, right. So I always refer them to mental health professionals who work alongside me. Yeah. We work together with the client to see what makes sense. So I, I work with, on occasion, um, more often now than, than I would like, um, divorcing couples or one side of a divorcing couple. Is there a you know, is there a method, is there a trick to keeping them in the uh, collaborative range as opposed to the you know, adversarial range? Great question, because I don't ever want to sell that process to anyone. Right. Um, I try to look at it, um, I learned from the woman who actually founded Collaborative Law, I, I guess around 25 years ago. She um, came in and did a specialized training for a group of us, and she said, treat it like the golden apple. Have people want to reach for that chance to collaborate and work well together. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly screening people out of the process because if you're not equipped to come up with your decisions together, let's not take your money and time and um, be ineffective. Right. So having said that, we are um, not only for low-conflict couples. That's kind of a misconception that, oh, we're all sitting together and singing Kumbaya. <laughs> Au contraire. Um, we, we wouldn't be divorcing if that were the case, exactly right? That's right, John. So it's really um, having the public and um, practitioners know that if, if there, unless someone is really um, clinically impaired, and again, I, I look to my mental health professionals to tell me, if somebody um, is not equipped to handle it. But right. having said that, I feel like I think any of us could be labeled with any, you know, and especially going through a divorce, everyone is triggered. Absolutely, so, right. That, that's uh, because I feel like it's so heightened emotionally, right? right? You know, I've not, never sat across from a person who was divorcing, even if they wanted it, who that's wasn't right. struck by it in some way. So we're just doing the best we can, again, with those coaches, lawyers, and the financial neutral to look and make sure this couple's really equipped to get over the finish line with this process, mm -hmm. keeping control, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's very daunting, but I, I feel like with the right people and the right team, remembering each of those people are trained mediators. So the lawyers, the mental health person, and the financial neutral We've all been trained on problem solving. We shift out of our role as fighters, and we keep shifting that if they want to take a position. Well, how does that reach this goal or that Got goal? It. You want to be divorced in six months? You're not going to do that if you go to litigation. You want to pay less than $10,000 for a divorce? You're not going to get that in litigation. You know, Looking at, at what are those golden apples again, mm -hmm. Do you want control or don't you? Right, right. And and people do carry some mythology about divorce, don't yeah. they? That you know, like like you mentioned, like you know, do you think it's going to be inexpensive? Do you think it, you know, um, if you're in litigation, that you can get this done quickly? Um, I feel like people are unfamiliar with the realities of you know the the course of things. That's right. And all too often, lawyers don't educate their clients on all the options available. Right. So when I'm meeting a client for the first time. 
guess what I do? Do you have a guess? Um, I listen. Yeah, I, listen. I like that. <laughs> so, John, as a mental health professional, you're listening constantly, yeah. right? It's not your job to sit and tell them what they need to do or not do. Through listening to them, you're helping them come up with their solutions, right? right. Well, as a lawyer, I feel like I'm doing both. But I feel pretty unique in that I try to listen to the client, and very often they're telling me, wow, for the first time I feel heard. So then mm -hmm. from what I've heard from them, I help them navigate which process makes sense. Is it at one end of the spectrum litigation, the other end of the spectrum mediation, where just the two of them are sitting together with a third party to come up with their own solutions, or something in between where they need more of a full team component. Right, right. After listening to them, I have in my head what I think makes sense for them, but I'm not going to tell them until we've processed it together, which process makes sense. Got it. So so it really is collaborative even with uh, with your clients. With me. I'm collaborating with what we call a small C all the time. Yeah. Collaborative law is a capital C. That's a real process and a brand. Got it. Yeah. Got it, got it. Um, another hat you wear is you are a guardian ad litem. Right. So um, that's the same as a child's representative. In Illinois, not the same. There are legal nuances, but mm -hmm. for the general public's purposes, I represent kids in court. Right, right. So uh, do you mind telling me a little bit about what that process is like for you and, and wearing that hat and whether it's as, uh, you know, as exhausting as being, uh, or, you know, kind of working with domestic violence. I always right. picture like, you know, guiding kids and, and representing kids through the divorce process is tricky stuff. It is tricky. Yeah. Um, what I tend to do in that process, even though they're in court, I try to help that couple. So I'm only looking out for the child. I'm constantly reminding them. I'm not on mom's side. I'm not a dad's side. I only care about this child or children. Mm -hmm. And remembering, let's say there's four kiddos. I've got four different people with four different interests very often, so that can be tricky, too. There could be a span of ages in there, right? Most always, yeah. right? So I've got a 14-year-old and a 2-year-old. Right. You know, the very different needs, et cetera. So that's another case where I'm trying to help this couple pull out of court and get to problem-solving mode. So I'll put on my mediator hat first to try to see if I can help them come up with a solution. There, the solution sitting in that room always. It's just, can they get there? Yeah. So, when you're already appointed as a child's rep or a GAL, you are empowered to some extent because if they fail to reach their terms, then the judge is going to listen to you. You're called what's the eyes and ears of the court. So the court's going to look to you, and you tell me what's happening with this family, Beth. Well, you can imagine again, very humbling. Hmm. You, uh, you're. The judge is entrusting you. Right. So I take that very seriously. So that's, again, why I'm telling the couple when they're sitting there, you want control. You don't want to give me control. Who am I? Who? Why would Beth McCormick have a better idea of what to do with these kiddos that I may have met a couple of times at best? Right. Ideally, you don't want them to ever meet me. Why would you want your child to have a lawyer? Ooh, this is such an important point, right? Right. right. Uh, ideally, you want to avoid this, right? Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to have to have your kids represented specifically one by one. Right. Yeah, such a good point. Right. Yeah, so so as, as a divorcing couple, what's our best way of avoiding that? Keeping your problem-solving hat on rather than your seek-and-destroy hat. If you want to destroy the other parent, I often tell them when I'm representing kids, remember, 
each of your blood pulses through their veins. Or obviously, in the case of adoption, you come up with another analogy. But those kiddos care about both of you. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be put in a position of choosing or... And that happens inevitably. Right. So I'm constantly reminding them, if you're trying to destroy the other parent, you're trying to destroy your child through that child's eyes. That's what they see and that's what they hear. You're being mean to mommy. Well, you're being mean to me because I love mommy just like I love daddy. And I identify with mommy just like I, de- I do. So that's exactly. so, so beautifully put. Um, so I, putting myself in the uh, in the seat of one of our listeners here, um, you've used the the phrase seek and destroy a couple of times. And I think um, some people might think, boy, that sounds awfully harsh. I suspect you would say no, that, that, that that's fairly accurate. It's not only accurate, it's kind of, I feel like um, fear, as as you know, is um, comes out as anger, right? Yeah. So out of that fear, all people want to do is go hire the toughest lawyer in town and seek and destroy the other side. What can I do to devastate? Is it financial? Is Mm -hmm. it take the kids away? Help me come up with the best plan to make this as difficult as possible for the other person. Right. That vulnerable state is what causes them to go there. And you're so right that, that, that fear, especially in situations like this, comes out as anger and aggression, right? You know, right. like I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin you. Yes, you know? because that's all I know to do. Right, right. And 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 too often um, divorcing parents forget the impact they're having on these kids, their own children. It's frightening to to think that, but it's it's what we see day in and day out. Yeah. Yeah. In my experience, people get kind of blinded by their own interests. And, and I don't mean That's to right. indict anybody. I think no. it's a very difficult emotional thing. Very real. Um, but, it, you know, keeping keeping the, the kids' interests in your lens of awareness is critical, isn't it? I it mean, really is. Yeah. So as a practitioner, I'm constantly reminding them of that. Having said that, again, you know, do I always represent the good guy? You know, I, I represent who's in front of me sure. to the best of my ability. So, if, if the other parent or the other party is so impaired, I absolutely have to go into fight mode because I'm protecting my client. Maybe sometimes their safety, maybe financially, maybe their, their kiddos. I mean, we all know those stories are out there. There are really sad stories out there. Absolutely, right. Um, I, this might be an unfair question. Do, do you have children? I do. How, uh, how many kids do you have? I have one who's the light of my life, a 14-year-old girl. So um, I, I've, I'm a, a father as well, a uh, parent, and, um, and people often ask me, you know, like, so when you work with young people, kids, can you remove yourself from that, being a parent yourself? You, can, you, can you really be objective, given that you're a parent too, and, you know, do you get this? <laughs> That's so fascinating to me that you put it that way, because I was just um, talking with a couple of colleagues earlier this week about being a child's rep, so uh-huh. I have to uh, women in my office who are wanting to maybe explore that. And I um, laughed with them about being a child's rep before I was a mother and how I was judged for that. And people would say, you have no idea. Until you're a parent, you can't tell me what makes sense. Right. So it's actually quite the opposite. Where I feel like, if anything, it's an, an asset. And our girl has some learning challenges. So I have a pretty unique niche in that way and that I have navigated the school system. I have navigated all of the resources available to these kiddos with these learning differences. So 
Um, I think all of that is nothing more than an asset. I can't see that it would be a, a liability. That's Other than that passion that I have. If you're not the spouse who's making good choices, and I see that you're, and I represent your child, I'll advocate very strongly for that child. And so that makes me very often unpopular, but that doesn't change my ability to fight for those kids. Have you always had that resolve? Like, you know, I, I so you've been doing this a while. Yeah. yeah. It's, count, it, it's <laughs> definitely intuitive. It's one of those, uh, um, it, my, my parents would say I had it in me as a small child. <laughs> my dad said I was always going to be a lawyer because I had the ability to fight well. And um, so then in law school, you're taught to, and it's just, it becomes part of who you are, the ability to fight. Uh -huh. I have loved the challenge of pulling out of that and saying, sure, I can fight, but that's really not going to get us anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so is that something you learned as you went as a lawyer that, you know, like, boy, I, I, I have this ability to fight. I can, I can really advocate hard when I want to and when I need to, but I prefer something less adversarial. It's actually a great question. Um, I uh, had our 14-year-old who was probably eight, seven or eight at the time. I went through what's called Stephen ministry training. Um, what that is is a lay ministry where you walk alongside people who are in crisis. Right. Whether it's they're dying or if their uh, loved one is dying going through a divorce, whatever crisis it may be. It's not, it's not a preaching ministry. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, in that training, I was able to stop and look at who I was as an individual. What's drawing me to be a Stephen minister? What's drawing me to be a lawyer? So I was able to do my own soul searching and realize, wait a minute, there has to be a better way. I am, as a woman, a person, a soft, gentle, warm, compassionate, kind person. Mm -hmm. And I'm putting on a hat every day that looks very different. Isn't there a way to work this together? And in that training, I, I made a change. And so I went through this um, collaborative training. Um, I was trained as a mediator. And I realized I can make a better difference in people's lives by doing it that way. And does it bear itself out? I mean, you know, I, I, I think some people maybe who've been through divorce, um, I'm working with a man who's been through more than one, mm. um, and I think he would say, oh, this, that feels like a pipe dream to me. The idea that, that, uh, that this could ever be collaborative and, and any gentler than war, you know? <laughs> right. So I'm constantly um, helping people understand how to look at it differently. Mm -hmm. So I met with a friend um, this week who is so broken, so destroyed, and for good reason. Tons of pain. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have me listen to tapes. He wanted to show me all the proof that he had. And I could look at it, and I was trying to help him see that's not going to help him. It may help him therapeutically. Right. Not You're sitting here as a friend who happens to be a divorce lawyer. I'm telling you, if you can't put away that anger and that hostility you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the same result or maybe not even as good of a result as you would in court. We're a no-fault state in Illinois. It doesn't matter how bad someone is. Right. So why would you go there? You can. I, can, I often say you can put my child through college or yours. I, you know, I, I, can make a ton, I can make a ton of money on this. I'm trying to stop you from doing that. So... Uh, I think whatever resonates with the person, if it's saving money, if it's saving heartache, 
you never know what's going to help a person realize that the fighting isn't going to help anyone right. other than the lawyers. Got it. Yeah. It's such a, a critical point, right? Yeah. Because too often, I think you find, yeah, it helps the lawyers more. It's putting my kid through college, not yours. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. 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 And there's a better way. Do you think this is a better way? Do you think this is the future? You know, do you think this is a better way for most couples who are divorcing? And there's a lot of them. Absolutely, unequivocally, hands down, the way um, family courts want people to be out of there, right? We're sure. all clogged. You know, if you want a divorce um, in 2018, you, you might want to file now. I mean, it, it's a long, tedious process, no matter what state or what county you're in. So the family courts are doing all they can to help people do that. Right. Having said that, John, as I spoke of earlier, there are a huge population of people who just can't do it so the yeah. family courts are always going to be there right i'm the president-elect of a organization called afcc association of family and conciliation courts where and it's an international organization um but we're trying um to constantly work on what how can we help these people it's a um lawyer's judges, mental health professionals, all organization, where we're all brainstorming. How are we going to help these people? Mm -hmm. We're looking down the line. We're looking back at these couples who divorced 40 years ago, 20 years ago. Wow. This legacy, what, it, what are they leaving behind? We're also working on, you know, I haven't even gone into in litigation. Some people have children who have lawyers they also have what's called a psychological evaluation of this family where they're entrusting um, their outcome to a psychologist who's doing mental health testing, who's interviewing everyone, and at the end of the day, making a recommendation on where this kiddo is going to sleep at night and who's going to make decisions for him. All of these people are working in organizations like AFCC yeah. to talk about best practices in that. What, what is the best way to do an evaluation? What's the best approach? Why? Um, so it's a, a great organization where, again, all these people can work together to figure out how are we going to serve these families for generations to come. And, it, and it's such enormous work. I mean, when you put it like, you know, where's this child going to mm -hmm. lay her, his or her head at night? You know, right. like, and, and you're right, there's a system that has to decide that. You know, if that couple can't, yes, right. the system's going to have to. I can't imagine why anyone would entrust a system, but as I said, it it happens a lot. That's to hear that from you is a big deal, right? I mean, yeah. you know, so I want people to make sure that they kind of almost listen to that twice. Like, you know, don't let the system be the decider right. for your lives and for your kids' lives in right. particular, right? That's where I was saying, you know, do you want that person in the black robe who? When I tell you, John, a trial, you know, people think at the end of the day, I'm going to have a judge decide this. You realize that a trial, even on its best day, can't begin to tell the story of a family, right? Mm, and that no. judge is going to make a decision based upon five hours of testimony, 28 hours of testimony, whatever it may be. Right. And a psych eval and, you know, right. some of this. The picture is never painted no. to the extent that that person's going to make the decision rather than the two people. Right. It's always fascinating to me. But again, it's what I've done. And yeah, it's 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 out there for those people who can't make the decision. The ideal I always want for the couples I work with where it feels like they're 
their intimate relationship has come to an end, right? Their marriage is over, right. is that they, and, and they have children, is that they are going to be co-parenting together. And if they can just redefine the relationship right. in that regard and yeah. focus on that, then then maybe they can collaborate and they can text instead of talking if that works better exactly. for them. Exactly, and, and then know. there's all kinds of websites that help people co-parent. Yeah. Our Family Wizard is one. There's probably 20 different right. websites that have calendaring systems and pay systems, et cetera, yeah. where people work together online. Yeah. Again, trying to keep up with what what how do people work together now? Right, right. I'm forever trying to say to people, can you even imagine where are you going to sit at the child's wedding? Are you going to be able to sit, dance together at your child's wedding? Think of that future. Think of you may be remarried, he may be remarried, but you might actually like each other enough. You created this living being. Why would you not be able to dance together to celebrate that child's wedding? Oh, that's so critical, right? If right. you can if you can put yourself in the long game instead of thinking like, you know, tomorrow. Let me talk about that custody for that Wednesday night. You exactly. know, I'm going to fight for that Wednesday night. <laughs> that Wednesday night or he's not even with the kids. I want the right to be with the kids when he's not with them. You know what? Everyone's going to be okay no matter who they're with on any given day, as you say. And is there, are, are there things that people um, fight about that, that you think is, is really frivolous and divisive, you know, and unnecessary? Is there kind of a theme where you're like, I can't believe this is the thing we're talking about? Well, in, in divorce <laughs> law, there's a, a constant with all lawyers where you kind of have to stop people. And that's on the issue of personal property. So ah. think of all the things in your house, John. Can you imagine any of it having any value other than photos, which are now digital? Right. <laughs> what we can all share those. Right. What could possibly matter enough to have a fight over and pay lawyers three to $700 an hour to figure out, right? You can buy all new in the amount of time you would spend on lawyers fighting over stuff. Right. So we always try to keep people from fighting over stuff. Nothing matters. Oh, such grand perspective, right? right. And right, and, and you can get so tied up in that, oh, right? You know, um, the candy dish, the toaster, whatever. Oh. We have we all have good <laughs> stories of what people will fight over. And going back to this collaborative approach, there is a story of a candy dish. Now, Seriously. you can all sit here and laugh, and it sounds crazy, but I bet you can also think of something in your house that really does have a lot sure. of meaning, and it may be a candy dish. Right. And so why should we laugh about the candy dish when it is something that's full of love or whatever history that piece has had? Yeah. We can't laugh always. Right. But having said that, more typically, it's just stuff. Yeah, and, and, and not that important. Right. So, so um, if, if somebody listening to us right now is on the front edge of all this and is considering like, you know, considering divorce or kind of, you know, stepping into the process of it. What, how do you, what do you, what advice do you have for that person? Get to a, an individual, whether it's a lawyer, whether it's a mental health professional, someone whose niche practice is only divorce, right? Just like you don't go to a heart surgeon if your left hand hurts. You go to the left-hand surgeon. Right. Um, everybody has a, a niche practice Yeah. Um, for good reason. I think um, any lawyer uh, who tries to do everything now, that those days are done. The mm -hmm. general practitioner days are got, done. So ideally, it's a lawyer who really understands divorce. Got it. Um, 
if it's uh, if you go to a therapist, it's a good idea to get to someone who's either doing marriage counseling, discernment counseling, coaching parents on how to uh, be better parents. Then you know they're in that divorce space. Yep. They're going to know all the top professionals, much like all the divorce lawyers are going to know the top professionals in the mental health field. Get to a specialist. Got it. Um, you seem so upbeat, and, um, and, and yet you're dealing with – people ask me sometimes, you know, what is it, do you ever take the pain home, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the clients that you deal with all day long? Um, and you're dealing with people at the toughest time in their lives, arguably. Arguably, no, and this is my answer always. Okay, let's hear it. Uh, the, the person who really has it tough is the pediatric oncologist, right? Hmm. At the end of the day – that's that's tough work. Yeah. People come to us by choice, whether they choose to get divorced or not. They they can they have control over that. Yeah. So to me, it's one of my greatest strengths is being able to put it away. I cannot and will t- not take it home. I have an incredible husband. It's actually helped my marriage because I have perspective on just how bad things can be. I was going to ask you uh, that. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, he's, <laughs> he's a gem on a million levels, but... Um, most importantly, he um, he listens to me, but I usually don't take it home. There, it doesn't help us, certainly, and um, living it twice is not fun or right. effective use of time. Yeah, so right, right. I tend not to take it home. And as far as the hard work, again, it's not hard work for me because it's what I do. Yeah. I think I do it well. I try to stay calm. I'll have people who interview me and say, you just seem way too nice. You seem way too kind, way too <laughs> soft. I want to destroy him. Well... If I'm scaring you, I'm probably not being effective. So I'm trying to help them see the power of I can choose when to be mean. I have I have the ability to be mean. You can turn that on. I certainly can. <laughs> um, is there any important part of, of your message that I'm blind to here? Is there anything I'm missing that I should be asking? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, could, I, could do, I could go on for hours. I can imagine. I'm trying not to. I... Uh, I think the message just really has to be loud and clear to people who are considering divorce that take control over your outcome. You do that in everyday life. You do that. All decisions you make every day, why would you ever give up control? That seems like kind of such a, a resonant and critical message and so easy to forget when you're in the midst of it. That's so right. Thank you for that. If, if somebody wants to reach out to you, and I know you are busy, <laughs> first of all, do you want that? And if so, um, how do they do it? I really like to get the message out. So even if it's just for information, I'm happy to talk with anyone. My uh, office is downtown Chicago, and then I also have an office in Bannockburn, if anybody knows where that is, <laughs> uh, a Lake County uh, North Suburban office. Yeah. So, um, but our office, I'm with the law firm called Beerman, and we do, as I talked to you about earlier, all kinds of um, family law matters, litigation, mediation. We have... 45 to 50 lawyers who work in all different realms. So I like to meet with people to figure out what what kind of divorce makes sense. So yes, I'm, I'm welcoming new clients. It's just whether I work with them or not is the client I would decide. Got it. Got yeah. it. Beth McCormick, thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. Yeah, Thanks. really appreciate all the wildly useful information that I think so many of us are unaware of. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, as always, you can hear this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, LiveLeadPlay.com, and WGN+. 
Um, you can listen to a free parenting program that I have on my website at drjohnduffy.com. It's a nice, easy program to follow. It's just a few simple videos. Uh, it will help you become a better, more present and available parent. Um, if you have any thoughts about uh, this podcast itself, or if you or somebody you know would make a good guest, uh, please feel free to reach out to me um, at John G. Duffy at drjohnduffy.com. Uh, as always, I so appreciate uh, the time you protect for myself and my guests. On behalf of Beth and myself, thank you so much, and I will talk to you next time on the Undo Anxiety Podcast.